down to like a five-day business post type process. So you can be able to produce your financials quickly. When you're going through one of these transactions, you have projections out there. And on a regular basis, the acquiring firms wants to see, has you hit the most recent projections or not? To be able to give them that information, you have to close the books quickly to give them the actuals for the most recent one. Welcome to the Business Owner Transition with Mike Quinlan, where we bring you content to help you transition your business on your terms. Hi, it's Mike Quinlan, and welcome back to the Business Owner Transition. Today, I'm happy to have Karen Reynolds from TechCXO and Don Bravaldo from Bravaldo Capital Advisors with me. I was fortunate to bring Don and Karen into a very successful exit planning engagement last year. For those of you in the current Academy cohort, you're going to hear from the former owner of that company during our next M&A related session. He'll be telling his story from initiating exit planning to the closing table. And I think that we all agree that this was a truly great story. Karen is a CFO partner at TechCXO and has over 25 years of experience as a CFO and CEO for both private and public companies in a variety of industries from technology, both software and hardware, consumer electronics, distribution, and private wealth management. She has worked for startups, turnarounds, companies preparing for transition, as well as mid-market revenue firms in excess of $500 million. She's a Purdue graduate. Yeah, and, go Boilers. Uh, yeah. <laughs> we're going we're to talk football here in just a minute, so that'll all be good. And she holds a current CPA license in Georgia. Don on my left here is a reform CFA or CPA. And I don't know if you can. It took ever, me a while to see the light there. Uh, uh, can you ever be reformed from being an Auburn guy? No, that's in your, that's, that's in your blood. That stays with you forever. Yeah. All right. Well, we're going to, you know, all those bulldogs out there, we're going to, we're going to go after you, but we work well with bulldogs, especially when they've been winning. They usually have no problem working with Auburn people. That's right. But listen, uh, so Don cut his teeth by working at a big four accounting firm. Firm. And then he spent uh, a few years doing corporate M&A with a public company, bringing, you know, purchasing uh, companies for that large corporate companies. And then over the last 20 years, he's had his company and he's directly advising private clients on M&A and corporate finance matters. His deal-making experience is on both sides of the tables, both mm -hmm. buy and sell side of the, of the table. His previous big four experience has given him the ability to really develop a nice firm that works really well with family-run businesses and the challenges that they have when they're going through M&A activities or corporate finance activities where they may be raising capital. So let's get started. Karen, tell us a little bit about TechCXO and the on-demand or fractional executive concept. So TechCXO was founded in 2003 here in Atlanta, and it was founded on the premise that companies can benefit from having the best executive talented, whether it's like CFOs, CMOs, CROs, any C-suite level talent um, on a part-time, a project, or an interim basis. Okay. The on-demand or the fractional model itself basically is a series of um, senior level executives, all who have prior experience either leading companies through some critical stages or um, working for startup companies and bringing them to scalability. Right. The model allows you a company to bring in somebody again on the part-time, the fractional, the interim basis, and use their talent and their skills to get them to that next level. 
I like to think of our on-demand executives basically almost as an athlete. An on-demand executive is somebody who can go from concept to nuts and bolts very quickly. Very similar to an entrepreneur. They basically are very lean. They're very fast. You find them to typically be doers, someone who can come in and basically roll up their sleeves and implement a strategy, implement a project very quickly and very concisely. Got it. So what is, you know, for those companies out there, they may be smaller, they may be larger, but yeah, you know, what do you see as real benefits that you bring to the table as you come in? You know, so what it really does is it allows a company or a CEO or an owner of a company to bring in the right skills, um, the right experience, and the right resources at the optimal time. Okay. You pick and choose when you want to bring this talent in. Um, you typically find certain companies, for instance, a startup. A startup is at a point where they're very tight on cash resources. So you do not want to be spending money on GNA until you have actually built your product and you have actually started to sell your product. Then you go ahead and you invest in some of that GNA spending. For a company in a transition, you know, you know you're going through a transition, you're about to go through that next phase. Do you want to be bringing in in-house executives at that point where you're not sure what's going to happen to that person after the transition? So instead, you leverage the on-demand model. You bring in some on-demand executives, again, CFOs, CMOs, COOs, bring them in to help you get through that transition stage. Then you determine what your long-term needs are. Yeah. And we uh, obviously saw that work very well. And we're going to talk more in just a few minutes about some specifics around that. But Don, from your role as a, as the boots on the ground guy, right there, you're the guy that's marketing a company or, or you're, uh, you're not marketing the company. You may be uh, doing a capital raise, right? Which is, which is also marketing Mm. in a sense, but so that mid-stage growth company or that late stage, a transition company, uh, what's been your experience with the fractional executives that might be brought in, not just a CFO, but other, you know, CTO, chief sales officers, those kind of things. Right. Um, Well, we typically work with lower middle market sized companies. Everybody has their own definition of that. But for us, it could be as large as 300 million or as as small as, as 10 million in annual revenues and everything in between, depending upon the industry group, of course. And in that size range, it's, it's, it's often the case where there's going to be gaps in the management team. It may not be apparent to the owner founder or to the key executives that are there. Uh, but when you have experience walking in a lot of different companies and, and having a lot of experience selling to much bigger companies that have more than enough executives, sometimes <laughs> you realize that often our clients could benefit from having that fractional on-demand executive work on a project basis and the project being let's sell the company. And, you know, that's not a, a one month endeavor, you know, if done properly, uh, the actual sale process can be six to nine months long, but the preparation process can, can actually be two or three years in the making. Right. Um, Really just depends on where we're starting from. Sure. And I know that, that everybody has probably encountered that family run business that's really run as a lifestyle business, right? So nothing wrong with that. Uh, You know, the owner has a a great time, uh, everybody's family. And at the end of the day, that business is is probably going to be managed from a tax basis, right? Mm -hmm. Right. Nobody likes to pay Uncle Sam. We want to maximize how much money we get to keep. Everything's good until it's time for a capital transaction. It's time to acquire somebody. It's time to borrow some money. It's time to bring in capital or it's time to exit the business. In which case, it's exactly the opposite that you would like to be doing, right? You'd like to to be run, at least show profitability like a public company. And like a public company, Mm -hmm. you really do need to have some effective managers. 
because part of a big part of what somebody's buying is really the people. As in the academy, right? One of the founding tenets of the academy is the I'm Good checklist, right? And those are major value driver areas across the business, starting with increasing cash flow and then institutionalizing management, which uh, bringing in the fractional uh, manager goes directly to that. As you guys come in or, or you come in and you're working with the management team, the owner, an opportunity to fill some gaps without necessarily having to expend a massive amount of dollars, exactly. right? Exactly. And so what is the cost structure kind of look like or how does how how that paid for a, a fractional executive? So I could speak more directly to the CFO side of it, which I'm part of, right. um, you know, your typical in-house CFO controller and say one staff accountant is going to cost you over $500,000 for just salary and bonuses. Right. You add in a benefits factor, say 20, 25% you're in excess of $600,000. So it's a pretty costly function to have in-house. Um, the part-time or the set fractional type model, it's actually built out on a per hour basis <clears throat> or on a project basis. So you basically pick and choose, you know, what you want to bring into the company. So how many hours do you want to have them work on? What projects do you want to have them work on? What we typically have found is that the interim part-time fractional role tends to run about 25% to maybe 50% right. of what your in-house is. So you take that 600,000 plus and you take about 25% of it up to maybe 50% of it max to have have the fractional role in there. And again, the thing I want to stress here is since we do bill out on a per hour basis or a project basis, it really is up to the CEO, the owner, the founder of the company to determine what their real needs are. You may bring us in for a specialized project. You may extend that project, or you may say, okay, right now I don't have the cash resources. I can decrease it some, or I can increase this as your needs are. When does it typically make sense to hire a fractional manager? So I typically find there's three different times you'd want to do this. Um, the first might be high growth, high stress. Your company has reached a stage in its life cycle that your current management team doesn't have the experience or the expertise to get you to that next level. So you bring in a fractional manager to help get you to that next level. Another time would be during a transition. Right. So that transition could be something where maybe a manager is actually turned over. So you bring in an interim person until you determine what your actual needs are going forward. Or that transition may be investor activity. It may be M&A activity, like through Don's group, something of that nature. Right. So you bring in a fractional person to come in during that time period. And then the third one I actually said would be specialized projects. So, you know, you're going through an area where you have a specialized project you need someone to come in for. Um, last year, I'll give you a great example that happened multiple times is the PPP filings. Yep. We had many of my customers who had to file for PPP loans, and then they had to have PPP forgiveness. So basically, I came into six different companies, did that filing for them, did the forgiveness filing for them. But you're also going to see that in other areas, too. You're going to see it like, you know, you might bring in a CMO, a marketing executive to come in and help the new marketing initiative. They come in, they help support your director of marketing to get you to that next level. And then they move out after that. I often see that, that some of the companies I'm working with are really concerned about the sales. They're concerned about marketing. They're concerned about IT right. and the ability to bring in one of these seasoned executives to come in and, and kind of set the course and get them going 
is is amazingly it works amazingly well. And you actually set, set a key thing there, set the course. Yeah. A lot of times we come in, we set the course, and then we move out after that and let their current management team take it over from Execute, there. Execute, yeah. Yeah, mm-hmm. that's right. So I have a note here that says, James is saying, Don, does the ROI typically justify the expense for having a fractional executive? Without a doubt. Uh, and, and I say that quite simply, having worked with hundreds of companies that think they're prepared when they're really not. And in some cases, we've been successful in, in convincing them to, to bring in the outside resources and help with you know the CFO on-demand type services. And the outcome of those processes has typically been what I would consider to be, and I think our owners would agree, a a real premium valuation. And to look at uh, how the dynamics work, Mm. when we have that additional help, our team can can really focus on the marketing efforts, you know, the research that goes into that, you know, the technical aspects of, of really negotiating the transaction. Uh, and making sure that the companies is prepared to have the best interactions with the buyer because we know that we have solid help in the the accounting and finance function. We can rely on the numbers. Mm-hmm. In the situations where the owners choose to go it alone and ignore the advice, oftentimes our firm can get bogged down in trying to, well, these numbers aren't right. Mm-hmm. You know, acting as pretending like we're accountants trying to fix things is not what you want to be, have your investment <laughs> bank investing their time in. Especially a reformed CPA. Right? Especially <laughs> a reformed CPA. You don't well, want to depend on my accounting skills. Yeah, so that's a great transition. So let's talk more specifically about uh, fractional CFO type okay. okay. How do you bring value to a mid-stage growth company? And then we'll talk We'll talk about a transition okay. here in a few minutes. So. Sure, sure. So say for a mid-stage company, there's a number of things we can do from a fractional CFO standpoint. Um, we can come in and work with the CEO on, say, cash management. A lot of companies have a certain amount of cash. They know how far that cash is going to get them, but they don't have a plan B or a plan C or a plan D in place. So we can come in and work on that side of it with them. Um, can come in and basically work with them on their budgeting process. You'll find many companies don't have a budgeting process in place, come in, help them implement their budgets, but more importantly there too, help them align their teams during that budgeting process and help them make some difficult decisions at time that budgets force you to do. After that's in place, we can come in and work with them on say variance analysis. Are they actually living up to the budgets they have in place? Are their actual results falling short of budgets? And if so, why is that happening? Let's do some analysis here of that. But we also can come in from other areas. For instance, one of my very first companies I worked with, I came in and I mentored their controller. Very sharp person. She had the right skills, but she didn't have enough experience. So I came in, worked with that company for a nine-month period on a part-time basis, got their controller up to speed, doing their monthly reporting, determining what KPIs they need should be monitoring, working with her on going through her first audit, preparing her schedules for the audit, working with her in the tax firm. And then I basically moved on after that because she stepped up to the level she needed to be at. And they really didn't need my resource anymore to help mentor her as much. Although to this day, she still reaches back out from time (laughs) and again, and I gladly help her as needed. Sure. Um, You also find that sometimes for a mid-stage company, we can just come in as a sounding board for the CEO. Everyone really does need someone to talk to. They need someone to bounce ideas off of. So, you know, sometimes you find a company maybe going from being a conservative-based company. Now they want to become more aggressive. We can come in and do some modeling for them. 
Or you may find that a company has reached that point where maybe they want an exit strategy and they want to have somebody come in to help them discuss what that exit strategy should be and how do they get to that. So there's a lot of specialized areas we can come in to help with in the mid-size yeah. company. Well, so it occurs to me as you're, as you're talking about this, first of all, every owner is going to exit. Yes. Okay. Uh, hopefully they're planning for it mm. and working hopefully. with all of us. Right. And, uh, or they, uh, many times they may get an unsolicited offer. Many of the people that are listening to us right now probably have some kind of offer letter they that is sitting, sitting on their desk, right? Somebody's coming. And if you are prepared and you are going through the I'm good checklist, because what you just addressed are two different areas of the I'm good checklist, right? It's um, documentation of operational procedures, right? So being able to document all of those financial procedures that you actually have budgets, Right. right. How many, right. how many companies do you talk to that actually have real budgets and actually use them? Almost none. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I can really say most companies that go into the budgeting process is something they've not addressed. Yeah. And it's not really their fault. Right. I mean, no. the thing is, is that they're working hard, they're doing stuff and, and uh, they, they spend money like they need to spend money yeah. and what's left over at the end, right. they, they put in their Manage the cash, right? again, right? Life, lifestyle business, right. it, you know, yeah. oftentimes it it's, it's not something that you planned out and thoroughly done a budget for. I know around the Brevaldo household, I wish we had a budget. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, it's not uncommon, right? But um, having those budgets in place and actually demonstrating that you're using them brings a lot more certainty to a buyer than it does if you're just kind of winging it, right? right? Um, and there'll be more things that we talk about uh, in, a, in a few moments there. But so... Uh, the second piece of that is optimizing financial statements, right? You mentioned um, preparing for an audit, correct? Right? Uh, and having financial statements that that can be believed by the outside world, right? So, if they're going to do in a in a uh, mid state growth company, if they need to access additional capital, right? Don, you know what that's like, right? You got to present information to potential lenders or investors, absolutely. And um, the more they believe it, the probably the better terms you're going to get and more interest. Right? Absolutely. You know, valuation is also a function of risk and that risk assessment that every buyer or investor puts on a company. And when they have assurance that those financial statements are solid, that that great growth that they're looking at is real, you're going to get a higher valuation. Yeah. But you know, how do you really support that, that risk assessment that it's low? It's having, you know, the, the procedures documented, you know, actually being able to demonstrate month in and month out that we're actually doing, uh, you know, good financial accounting and uh, that our, our financial statements are presented according to generally accepted accounting mm -hmm. principles. Um, and, and on top of all that, that, that the company has a culture of kind of financial management, you know, baked into, to its culture, yeah. not just something that, uh, the owner started to pay attention to a month before they, they're selling the company. Right. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. So the, uh, the phrase that I, I advocate and I put at the top of that strategy document, right. Is a culture of financial performance. And if a company can, uh, can kind of live and live up to that culture of financial right. performance by using the skills and, and knowledge that you have and by uh, presenting that with you and alongside you as you build the documents that you have to build to sell the company. Um, you know, what do you see better, right? Do you see a better outcome or you certainly don't see a worse outcome? Exactly. Yeah. And in some cases it's, it's allowing you to transact. As you mentioned, only 25% of the folks are successful transacting. 
um, or transacting mm-hmm. successfully. And right. there's a good component of people that you ask that did transact it. What, you know, did they do it the right way? Would they do something different? And, and they all raise their hand and say, yes, if I had it to do all over again, I would. And a lot of it comes back to preparation and to, to building the foundation. And that goes back to people. Again, when we see good growth companies that it's time to exit, oftentimes they've invested in a lot of the right areas, mm-hmm. right? You know, technology, people, sales, good product lines. They've done all those things. Where they typically underinvest in a privately held business is in the financial function. And again, all of that's fine until it's time to have, you know, to have the exit successfully. Right. And that's where it catches up. And also, you know, an important thing to think about is value is forward looking. You know, yes, buyers want to pay for historical performance, but the reason they're buying it is the future. Well, how do you convey what the future is? It's called having a forecast. So, you know, what's critical to us in the work that we do is not only a budget for how this year is going to go, but it's actually the next five years. And when you talk with a private a business owner about the next five years, they say, Don, I can't even tell you what's going to happen in the next six months, right? <laughs> but this is a discipline that an, a, a fractional CFO and Karen and her team can really, really help with. Yep. Help us as, as the investment banker, help the client start to develop a forecast, especially one that's defensible. Because yep. we, we're often accused of of just doing the old hockey stick on the paper as an investment banker and trying to convince a buyer that, yes, we're going to be a $200 million company when we're $10 million in annual revenues right now. But it's Karen and her team that are, are really able to build the foundation that yep. helps us. Well, so uh, it's almost like we've done this before because you just kind of taken me right into the next section that we're going into, which is preparing for, for transition and make sure that uh, I get back to the credibility issue, which we you just alluded to. But Karen, as you're starting to work now with somebody that is you know a couple of years out and they're really preparing now for, you know, they're actually planning for the exit, right? and planning to maximize value and maximize probability that they'll be successful, right? So what are the kind of things that you're doing there for that type of company? So the first thing we basically would do, is we'd come in and do what I kind of call pre-diligence cleanup, come into the company and, you know, start off by looking, are there any gap issues? As um, Don mentioned earlier, generally accepted accounting principles, basically short-term gap. So are there any gap issues we have to deal with? Are they recognizing revenue correctly? Um, we go through all their balance sheet accounts, we reconcile all their balance sheet accounts, and we determine, is there anything there that we need to adjust? In many cases, what we find is a company is on cash basis. Many of the privately held, you know, um, owners run their company based upon cash. They're more concerned about tax than they are about anything else. So we come in and we have to convert their financials from cash to accrual basis. That in itself can take quite a bit of time. And it's also a very mindset change for the company because again, they're just like, okay, I have cash in the bank. I spent to this level. You know, they're not concerned about whether they're recording it correctly or not. So we come in, we do that type of pre-diligence cleanup. And one of the other things we're really looking for here is any red flags. When Don's group comes in, we want to make them aware in advance, hey, we think there's exposure maybe on sales tax. Right. We look for the things they might have some potential exposure. We want to make sure the M&A firm's aware of that up front so that we can have our answers to those questions before we actually get into the real du- diligence process. It's right. a whole lot more fun to know about those skeletons before yeah. <laughs> you're in the closing environment and the buyer knocks mm-hmm. on your door and tells you you got a problem. Yeah. Well, so you mentioned a few minutes ago forecasting. 
right? Mm-hmm. And uh, part of what you always have to put in your book, right, is, uh, is what's the growth going to look like? And as you said, buyers, they like to buy the past, but, uh, you know, uh, multiple comes from a, a very nice mm. picture of the future, right? So exactly. it's, I, I think it's, we can all agree that, that right. somebody that has a well laid out future plan, even if they can't execute, right? They may not have the capital, they may not have the timeline desire to do it, but if they can lay out a picture with some metrics and potential, um, the financial impact mm. through a forecast that says, look, if we execute this strategy, this is where we think that we can take this business. I don't have the stomach to do it, but you, Mr. Buyer, you got all the capital and all the human capital to be able to do this. Right? Exactly. So how many, how many of these companies do you see that, that have forecasting like that in place? <laughs> so none. There aren't any that I've seen that actually have those, that forecasting in place or in those five-year projections, that's not in place when we come in the door. We actually come in and that's part of what we're doing is getting them ready to have those projections in place. Right. In a lot of environments that Karen and I've worked together, mm. she gets started historically getting mm. things straightened out and we get started, you know, helping to helping the owners figure out what that long-term growth p- plan is. And then Karen catches up to us and helps us document it. Right. Right. And again, it's, it's also about being able to articulate that correctly. And again, if you have most privately held businesses have somebody in that controller function, but you know they may have started when the company was very young and they've never had any experience going into a capital transaction. And so, it's a big help to us to have you know a partner that has gotten familiar with the company, even mm-hmm. if they're quote unquote a fractional outsider, but they're there to help that internal management team articulate the story correctly. Right. Yeah, well, so, and there we go. So that it goes to credibility, right? Um, Karen, as you are, yeah, you, you have the experience to go toe-to-toe with, with any of the buyer teams, right? Correct. And so as you look at some of the companies that you're dealing with, and Don, this is a question mm-hmm. for you too, do you typically see the management team have that, that experience or that capability to stand up there and really present the company well and answer the difficult questions that, uh, you know, some of those buyers may throw at you. Well, again, almost every owner we work with has been successful at building a great company. And so on the operational side, the sales side, whatever their strengths are, you know, they're magnificent and they're, they're great presenters uh, nine times out of 10. But, you know, we, we would never expect an owner founder to get up there and ask, answer questions about, you know, gap accounting and, you know, the monthly close on the, on the uh, balance sheet and, are the reserves on the inventory correct? I mean, that's Karen's job. And, right. you know, I'd much rather Karen who has kind of knowledge of what her answers and the impacts it's going to make in an investor's mind do that as opposed to, let's say, a really solid controller that's been able to do the debits and credits, but has no no idea about the big picture and the answers mm-hmm. to those statements and and the value implications it can have. Yeah. And, and, and so, Karen, you know, kind of same question over to you. Um, the, you know, your experience with these, you know, with standing up and being able to do that. And then some of the people that you've worked with that are really good at what they do. Right. Right. But maybe don't have the, those kind of key phrases or key insights 
to what the buyer is really looking for. Oh, absolutely. I mean, it, it adds so much credibility to the whole process to being able to stand up there and present the company and being able to answer, you know, basically on your feet questions that are coming at you during these presentations regarding why don't you have an inventory reserve? What is your inventory turns? You know, what has your historical bad debt write-ups been? Being able to answer those very quickly, concisely, and really know what you're answering adds so much value to the company. Um, it actually shortens the whole financial due diligence process. When you're going through that acquisition and they're coming in to do their diligence, it shortens that process because they already feel comfortable that you have all of this analyzed and you can produce the schedules that they're going to need to support what you have said. And that's part of it too. We actually, not only do, are we able to say this and stand up and state some of this, we have the supporting documentation behind us to provide to them during the data rooms later on to support what we have told them. Yeah. So the, so here are some key elements that I, that I see, right. Is that financial forecasting to be able to substantiate the growth plan. Correct. Right? Uh, credibility and presenting to the acquisition team, maintaining value through the transaction to defend the multiple that we've established at the very beginning. Right. So right. That's right. something that yeah. we all talk about all the time. Go into the LOI with the maximum value that you can have, because the only thing that can happen after that typically it's is loss of value. Right. Yeah. <laughs> right. So, but on that point, you know, and I want to stress this to our owners out there who, you know, most of them are going to say, well, this is all fine and good, but you know, I, I've got an audit. I get an audit mm -hmm. every year of my annual financial statements. I'm good. You know, right. what do I need this for? Why do I have to add the fractional CFO? Well, it goes back to that point exactly, which is value is determined on a trailing 12 month basis. And that, that uh, accounting yeah. firm doesn't come in and audit the September balance sheet or the, the, you know, the October balance sheet, what they come in and, and look at is an annual financial statement. Well, in a growth company, you could be on a trailing 12 months basis, you know, capturing a lot of EBITDA growth times a multiple. And it's, it's a lot of value that you could be missing out on if you don't have the capability of, of really closing those books quickly and giving the investment bankers the, the trailing 12 month data they need. Yeah. And that, that closing the books quickly, yeah. uh, <laughs> tell me the story about closing the books quickly. <laughs> so that's an interesting one. Cause most times when you go into a company and actually I'm with a company right now where, you know, they're 45 days out from May and they're not even close to closing their May financials or their books for May. So one of the things we do come in and we try to look at how do we streamline the month end close process and ideal world, you want to really get this down to like a five day business close type process. So you can be able to produce your financials quickly when you're going through one of these transactions, you have projections out there and on a regular basis, the acquiring firms wants to see has you hit the most recent projections or not to be able to give them that information. You have to close the books quickly to give them the actuals for the most recent month. And to that point, I want to add a little bit more too, because it's a mindset change for many companies. You go in and you're changing a mindset of why you have to do this, but not only on the financial side, but on the operation side. Um, you know, you're trying to say, okay, we're get, approaching month and closing. We have a couple of days left in the month. We need to get everything shipped out the door where historically it may just be, oh, we don't ship it this month. We'll ship it next month. What's the difference? What's a day make? Well, right. a day difference makes a lot. If you're trying to hit a financial revenue projection Correct. and you come short just because you didn't ship everything out in your warehouse that particular day. So, again, sure. again, that's a mentality, right? right? right. And when it's, and when it's managed from a tax basis, we, we probably don't want that extra. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Sales, right. <laughs> we can defer that to the next year. 
But when we're selling the company, every 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 little bit counts. Yeah, I, you know the buyers they as this process goes on, they want to be sure that you're hitting the numbers that you tell them that you're going to hit, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, and yeah. if you can't close the month, it's a little hard to do that. Isn't it? it sure is. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, just some observations from you know my experience of working with both of you guys, right? Is that um, you know, I see, and we're reinforcing a few kind of key points here, but um, is that fractional CFOs are experts in the fields that they're, that they are in, right. And provide that highly credible experience, right. For right. both the, the business owner and then also for the buying team. Um, they can be very cost-effective and deliver a big punch. Right? Uh, they can build value during the mid-stage growth phase of a, of a, uh, company. And, you know, when I say that, I mean, uh, you know, optimizing financial statements, right? I mean, optimizing financial processes. Correct. And also getting to that culture of financial performance and the discipline that it takes to really go from being the low end of the, of the multiple spectrum, right? Right. To the higher end of the multiple spectrum as they get into that, to that sales process. Um, you know, during the late stage transition phase, they can work with the M&A team to help position the company properly, maximize transaction value, and then defend that value through till closing. Correct. So, um, so guys, what kind of final thought, what, what are your top three? Tell me your top three things that uh, are the best areas for you to, to bring value to, to either type to these companies? So I think we've hit upon two of them already, which is really the timely and accurate financial information on a monthly basis, getting it out quickly, making sure it's correct, um, making sure that we're comparing to our projections, providing that information to the M&A firm. Um, the adding the credibility during the presentations, I think is very important. It's critical to what we have done, standing up there and representing the company and knowing that company well enough that you can represent them and you have enough information about them that you really really understand truly what's on their balance sheet. But the third thing that I don't think we've touched on yet is the networking capital adjustment. Yep. So one of the key things that I think we do is we come in and we know the company so well that we can provide balance sheet projections to Don's group. And that is really critical for us to be able to work with them to say, you know, this is the, it's part of the current assets, the current liabilities we should exclude from the networking capital adjustment, coming up with a forecast of what that's going to be. And really the last thing you want to have happen is after going through this whole process, come back to your owners after they've sold the company and say, hey guys, I'm sorry, you've got to write a check because we fell short of what we thought we were going to be on our balance sheet projections. Right. So that's really critical for us to work with Don's group on that. I mean, Don, I couldn't agree? agree more. Yeah. And then just to take a step back for the audience purposes, the second most negotiated point in an M&A transaction right behind the valuation of the company is the working capital adjustment, which is, is typically going to be a formulaic approach that's argued quite a bit in the purchase right. documents and is trued up after the sale. And there's nothing worse than, you know, an owner that is celebrating, you know, a really big win in terms of the valuation that they, they got at the closing table, having to cut a check back to the buyer because, and, and have it be a surprise, right? There yeah. was, there was a, a downside surprise. And again, another great reason to work with a good fractional CFO team uh, like Karen and her team, because they're going to know down to the penny as, as much as yeah. possible where the company's headed 
and uh, and be able to defend it too because a lot of buyers want to play tricks with that yep. and they do they do own the business mm -hmm. post sale yeah. So yeah, keep that in true. mind, you know, when, when they're truing up the balance sheet, they've got a lot of expensive accountants that are in there that can, you know, pull a few levers to, to, to mess with a working capital adjustment. Yeah. And Good point. At the, so interestingly, I've seen several companies recently that have excess working capital sitting in their businesses. And Karen, if somebody's carrying an extra million dollars of cash, how does that how, what are you doing about that? How does that impact that, that sale? Well, starting that off, I think that again, is something that you pick up on, you know, as many companies as you work with and obviously bringing in an M&A team like ours, that may be one of the first things that we study. We find out through benchmarking that business against its peer group. We suddenly realize that their working capital is twice what the industry average is. You don't do that in a situation where the owner is saying, hey, I'd like to sell this company next month. <laughs> right. You really need to find out about something like that a couple of years in advance because that's going to take optimizing you know, a lot of financial performance in the working capital over a multi-year period of time a lot of times. Right. It gets and, into the detailed and, area. And that's, you know, a good point too as to why sometimes you have to bring in that fractional CFO level years before you're actually going to go through this process too. You know, not on a regular basis, but bring them in on a part-time basis to work with the other firms to come in and say, okay, where are we going in the future? And let's start looking at working capital early on. If you bring us in three months before the transaction's happening, it's too late for us to change anything. There. Right. And, right. And the buyer's argument is going to be, well, you know, this is the way it's always been for you. Now you're going to try and convince me that I don't need that much working capital to run the business when you've had it for yeah. the last 20 years. Right. It's, well, it's, it's, it's a hard argument to, to win at that stage. Yeah. I, I, and I look at it this way. It creates uncertainty for a buyer that doesn't need to be there. Right. So why are you doing yeah. it? Right. Yeah. Uh, so I have two questions on the board here. Uh, one is from Holly. She says, I live in Savannah. Can I get a fractional CFO in Savannah? Absolutely. Um, so a company like TechCXO, we do have partners throughout the United States. And as we all saw from last year with the whole COVID experience we went through, most of us can work remotely now through Zoom, et cetera. You can work remotely. Um, it's very easy to do that. And so we can do it from that standpoint. But we also do have some partners who are willing to either travel. It just depends upon the situation. But you know, I find that we can work for anywhere. I You can have a client in Chicago and be based out of Atlanta. Yeah. And then uh, I've got another question here from Kevin. He says, uh, he says, this all sounds great, but uh, what can we expect the hourly cost of a, of a fractional executive to be? And, and you know, that there's a range there that varies. It yeah. really depends, depends upon who the particular executive is, what their level of experience is and who they're bringing with them on the team. For example, on the deal that we worked on together, I had a controller in there with me and she actually was phenomenal, had 10 years from Deloitte before she came to our company, great person, great experience, but she bills out at a substantially lower rate than I do. Right. So I come in, I'm doing some of the management side of it, but the controller level is doing a lot of the detail work for me. And that's thus costly to the company. Yeah. And, and I think too, that those, your, your, uh, executives can help provide training to the staff Absolutely. that's already there. Absolutely. So they may come in for a six month period of time and then, and then, not be required at that level from a strategic standpoint. Correct. Very you true. Know, Very you true. probably want to keep somebody like you on the hook so that 
they can do check-ins throughout the year to figure out if that strategy is staying intact from a financial standpoint. You know, and I think that's an important quick point to make about the experience in working as a team, whether it's, it's, uh, it's Karen and Kendra, their team, they know how to work with one another and leverage those points to, to manage the fee level and load for the client. But it's also, you know, the M&A firm's ability to work with tech CXO and to know exactly, you know, that Karen and, and her team have our back, right? It's a little bit difficult to walk into a situation and, 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 and be working with people, other professionals you don't know. Right. So think about those dynamics. It, it, it's fine for everybody to get acquainted. I just wouldn't want to do it six months out from, from a date right. of a close, you yeah. know, a couple of years out and everybody starts to really figure out how to work together and you, you optimize your team that way. Yeah. Well, guys, listen, I have really enjoyed, as I always do, having mm. you guys here and learning something from you like I do every single time that we, we talk. And for all of you out there, we appreciate you joining us today. Since you were kind enough to spend time with us today, for those of you that are not in Academy Cohort, then I can send you a couple of things. I've got Don's M&A report, which sure. is highly Great. valuable. We'll send that out to you. Karen has got a wonderful presentation on fractional management and right. uh, how that works. So we'll send that one out. Okay. And then uh, from the Academy, we have a, a great assessment that we give to all of our owners as they enter the, the cohort for the Academy. It's the business wellness checkup. We'll send that to you and you can fill that out and it, it assesses your readiness across those nine different areas. What we can do is arrange to have one of the Academy staff talk to you, uh, either myself or some of the other instructors, do a review of those answers for you to kind of give you some context around what that means and how it compares to other owners. Once again, thank you very much. We look forward to seeing you again in uh, the next of this continuing series. Thanks, everybody. Day. Thanks. Thanks.